Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with New Orleans-based record producer, performing artist, author, and runner, Don Paul. He is a creative force that opened up about his life in art and humanity. He talked to us about his CDs, The Time We Have, Meld Number 1, and Women and Music, Meld Number 2. Proceeds benefits sticking up for children's partners in Haiti, and he is a big proponent of helping people. His life has been an inspirational journey through all of these varied interests as a renaissance man and a giving cab. Dig this story. Hey, Don, thanks for taking a minute out, man. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for your show. Thank you for the many, many years of your show. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I'm just standing on the shoulders of giants. As we get into this, you know, the tapestry of releasing all of these new recordings that you have is that we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're coming out of it. But there's greater chances now of things as the world wakes up. What does it mean to have new material come out during such a time right now in 2021? Well, as in last year, it seems like a lifeline, especially with the response. Uh, and I thank Kate Smith a lot for that. Kate Smith and her uh, promotions team. Somehow that first album, uh, The Time We Have Meld One, compilation of 13 tracks, got uh, number three on the jazz charts and was on 65 stations. And it all seemed marvelous to me. It seemed like 1973 or something, you know. There was still that kind of reach possible. So that continues. I made many good friends through community radio. My wife works for WWOZ, and I've had some acquaintance you know, through her, but I had no real can as to the national and international reach that's still there. Talk to me a little bit about how you survived this pandemic. What was, what, what happened when this began and kind of how did you go through it keeping everything going? You had a lot going on in your life. How did you keep everything afloat and stay sane up to this point? That's a good question, Joe. I've never really thought about it. I tend to be a motor just running. But I'm reminded of a remark uh, from Haiti, from a documentary called I Am Haiti. You know, Haiti has the, the least incidence of suicide of any nation in the Western Hemisphere. And one person responds, we don't have time for suicide. While all this was going on, I was really bothered by it, you know, and wrote a lot about it. But there was no, no deterrent, really. There was more of an incentive than a deterrent, especially as I saw the need, and it all just kind of continued to come together. It was frustrating to not be able to get out, you know, with my musicians here. It's always great to be with Roger Lewis, Kirk Joseph, Herlin Riley, and so forth, but there seemed to be something welling up uh, in its place, and I can't really articulate that. It, it just was energizing. Uh, I saw that I filled up two 200-page notebooks within about six months. So there was something going on despite the material closures. That's the thing about you is that, as I mentioned, you have so many different things that are going on. You're a record producer. You're an artist. You're an author. You're a runner. Talk to me a little bit about what you exactly did with this project. How were you involved, and how did this all actually come together? Well, let me uh, refer back to the main thing that kind of inspires us, my wife, Maurice-Philippe Dijon, and me, and that's sticking up for children. We work with an orphanage and three schools in Haiti. It's uh, an effort that began with Sherwin Gaynell Neville 
uh, for the orphanage in Haiti, and we've also worked with schools in New Orleans. But Joe, seeing what they do, given what they have to go through uh, in Port-au-Prince, that's a constant inspiration. And there are so many good things happening, like Maurice's aunt is named Madame Marie-Marc Franck-Paul. She's been a teacher for over 60 years, and she authors a textbook there in French, Haitian Creole, English, and Spanish, and she's long wanted to get that into audio and video form. So we've been occupied with that a lot. We've had a lot of contributions for that, and they've got the whole 243 pages of the textbook recorded, and we're now in the process of trying to bring that to everyone across Haiti. So there's that, and then with the with the albums, uh, it was just time in 2019-2020 to begin to regather work that dates back from 1989 when we couldn't do a record that I wanted to produce of the concert for Kid Jordan's birthday at the New Orleans Jazz Museum, I just turned attention to this compilation, and Maurice steered me to Kate, and from there on. So that's the best way I can explain it, is just every day there's something to do, and there are many good people to do it with. Well, you're one of those good people, and I find it fascinating with folks that, you know, give of their time so much. I mean, I have a, uh, I've seen a, a part of this spectrum, my son is in the autism spectrum, and I've been very involved with therapeutic services mm-hmm. and a different way of life that I never knew existed. And right. I think the thing that I've realized about life, especially with the coronavirus, is we really aren't in control of a lot of things. But the one thing we can be in control of is the love that we dole out to people. And when I hear about stories like you helping so many people, how did this motor begin for you, so to speak, to... to to feel oh, I, I, I was such a selfish teenager. I'm just beginning to balance, you know. I was, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it seems like, and I don't know your age, Joe, but it, for me, 40s into age 50, I became a lot more concerned with the world outside the, quote, art, unquote, that I was making. You know, I was exclusively a writer until 1988. My brother Kenton introduced me to making songs or poems and so forth. But I just really began to be more and more impelled that way, and I'm sure you have the same thing. Once you get into it and get the um, gratification, you see what uh, a little can do in terms of a lot for others. Uh, it is uh, a drug. It definitely seems like a, a way to health. You know, If you're not concerned with yourself, somehow you're healthier otherwise. Absolutely. How did all this begin for you? Tell me about exactly where you were born and a little bit about your family life and how you got this desire to do what you do in your life. So, Joe, I was born in uh, Nova Scotia and we moved to Brandon, Manitoba when I was one, lived there until I was six, moved to uh, Reno, Nevada so my mother could get a divorce, then moved to Sacramento, uh, spent two years in the Golden State, 56, 58, moved to Bellingham, Washington, a beautiful town in the northwest corner of the state of Washington, about 20 miles below the Canadian border. And that's where I really grew up. I was there until age 17, went to uh, grade school, junior high, high school there, 
And I was a very bored uh, schoolboy, so around age 15, I uh, started to write a novel that I completed at age 16. Got a lot of encouragement from uh, generous teachers. And I was pretty much committed from there on to being a writer, and I held to that, you know, living in a lot of cheap circumstances uh, until I got a, a Wallace Stegner Fellowship to Stanford and then continued to live in cheap circumstances with, with a lot more friends. Um, I made some lifelong friends at Stanford, Chuck Kinder, Michael Rogers, Scott Turow, uh April Smith, Tom Siegel, uh and then throughout the 1970s, I was a prose writer writing a novel and stories, and I was also a blue-collar worker. I was a, a logger in the Pacific Northwest and Southeast Alaska between 73 and 77, and then a roughneck uh, in the Gulf of Mexico between 77 and 80. And that was what kind of moved me out of prose into poems because the work I was doing was completely unrepresented in terms of poems that I saw, but I felt it was mute, musical. There's a lot of music and rough picking, you know, the rhythms and so forth. So I began to try to evoke that, depict that, and became more of a regular poet. And then in 88, my brother Kenton, very gifted musician, came over with his guitar in San Francisco I lived in North Beach in San Francisco between 1979 and 2004 and soon began to write songs and then recorded an album that year. And over the next whew, seven years, led or produced 15 albums, got acquainted with some really outstanding people in the Bay Area, my own band, Suspect Many, John Baker, John Carr, Diana Dharma, uh, John Law on drums, Babatunde Lay on drums, and also the improvising community there was very strong at the time. I came, became especially good friends with Glenn Spearman, uh, produced two albums by Lyle Ellis, a good friend. India Crook, that album was nominated for a Grammy, Paul Plimley, and so on. I just love being in a studio. It's uh, such a world unto itself and such an open-ended world. That was the intense period of recording between 89 and 95 or so. I was drawn, you know, as you were talking about, into social activism in the latter 1990s, and that kind of carried through up until 2010, really. Uh, in early 21st century, with Malik Rahim and Marie Harrison and Alma Lark, we founded an organization for public housing tenants in San Francisco, Gave you Hunter's point called Housing as a Human Right. And we worked that, and then we worked another one called From the Ground Up. Katrina, uh, or rather the federal flood, struck in New Orleans, and I moved here as soon as I could in January of uh, 2006. And I've been in New Orleans since then. I was kind of five years a volunteer with Common Ground and Rebuild Green and a project called the uh, Wesley United Digital Arts and Training Center. And then I met Maurice in late 2011 and began to again be more of a, a performer as well as a writer. You're also a very celebrated runner. You have records and that's been definitely a part of your, your life. And 
I hear a myriad of these things that are a part of who you are. How do they all intermingle so well to fuel the creativity that you've obviously had going for decades and decades? You know, it's a mystery to me, I'll say first, Joe, but I think it's all part of somebody's plan, and it's all been fortuitous. Like, I became a logger because I got a flat tire and somebody <laughs> stopped, helped me fix the tire, insisted that I go to a local bar, <laughs> and I walked across the street, and the woman working in the office was a girlfriend of a high school friend, and she was in a logging company. But anyway, not to go jump too far afield, I think it's all part of something that's already in you, rather predestined. I ran in high school, and it was pretty good as a 880 runner. I was a distance then. And then I completely gave it up to smoke cigarettes and uh, be a, a poet, my D, and, you know, be a writer full, full time, full on. Then I kept being drawn back to it, like, like I'd run one or two times a year. And finally, an English friend in San Francisco persuaded me to try it twice a week, two times a week. And long story short, I had a lot of talent, to tell the truth. And within two months, I was running at a level that brought me to qualify for the U.S. Men's Marathon Trial in 1979. So that was like it came out of nowhere, but it was such a big part of my life for the next 10 years, certainly. I was, you know, trying to be a world-class runner. And I met so many people and went uh, went so many places. I was able to run in Brazil three times, in Japan. And I met, you know, lots of Africans, lots of uh, people from South America. And it was kind of like, to try to answer your question, I, I think, most distance runners in particular are are like artists, in part because you have to spend so much time alone and so forth. I think a lot of athletes are like artists. Having the energy that's generated through regular exercise, and particularly that kind of solitary exercise where you're musing a lot on your easy runs, I think is very good for creativity. So that's what I can say about how the athlete uh, writer musician uh, combination works. I'll also say there's a lot of music in exercise, too. Yeah, and it's interesting, I think, about the jazz angle of things, like you said, about, you know, getting picked up and going to the bar and how your your course is altered. You don't know what's going to happen. That's one of the beauties of life. And I think I've, I've learned that more and more over all of these years of interviewing and being around jazz musicians is that the beauty of all of this is that really you're doing something for the first time and it will be the only time that you ever do it. And I think that's the thing that's right. so refreshing about being alive is that there is an originality that goes into every single thing that we all do. Right. Yeah, I recall, well, I was worked with really good musicians in the Suspect Many Band, but then Glenn Spearman invited me to perform with he and Rafa Malik, and they're both like uh, veterans of Cecil Taylor's bands. And, I recall a particular occasion there when I was just taken away. And that refers to what you're talking about. There are moments that you can't anticipate that bring you to a deeper, wider space, an illumination you would not have known before. Kirk Joseph, uh, who's with me now in uh, 
our Rivers of Dreams band here in New Orleans, the sousaphonist for the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, puts it well. He's, he said, well, thank you, Don, for taking us to the other side. You, you know, I keep thinking the minute you talked about just kind of when you started talking about your longevity and how things come in that you can't expect, I remember seeing a documentary, and Dave Grohl was in there. He was talking about how crushed he was after Cobain died and the band broke up, and he didn't know what he was going to do. And he went to a really remote part of the planet. And I can't remember exactly where it was at. could have been Iceland. It could have been Africa. It could have been somewhere. But it was a billion miles away from where he was used <laughs> to being. And he yep. saw a kid that had a Nirvana shirt on, and it completely changed him. <laughs> like, he was, he was done. He was like, I'm out. I'm not doing the music anymore. And when he came back, he, he formed the Foo Fighters. You know? Uh -huh. And it's those moments of magic in life that are mystical that you don't know what's going to happen. And it changes every single course of what you think you're going to do. Right. Yeah, like Haiti. I think, I don't know how Haiti was in me all the time, but forever. In particular, with music, we did a, a track called Crack War Going On in early 89. And the basic rhythms were taken from an album called Voodoo Drums of Haiti. You might know it. It's out in, you know, LPs and cassettes and so forth. That really ran through me. It was rooted in me. And every time I had an interaction with Haiti, for whatever reason, it was intense. I remember when uh, Aristide was deposed in uh, early 2004. I was just livid. I was so angry that, you know, uh, someone who was head of a sovereign nation could just be yanked out again. And there was no tangible reason for me to feel that strongly about it, but there it is. And every time I've been to Haiti, we've been there 11 times since we got married in 2014. We went to the, a really good festival. I want to recommend Port-au-Prince International Jazz Festival. You know, it's always been like a route, like Asi, Hopi country in, in Arizona is another one where there's just a, a magnetic pull to the place. And, with Haiti, I always feel good there, despite the poverty and the hard times. It's just very good to land in Haiti. I think that's a part of the predestination you were talking about and how there's levels of reincarnation that can be a part of it. My wife always has a very strong pull towards the Native American side of things. Now, I'm 100% Italian, um, or no, 50, I'm sorry. My dad and his ancestors all came from Italy, and I happen to be able to go to Italy I had a pen pal in high school and ended up traveling out there and made it down to Rome. And I don't know that I've ever been in a place on this planet as magical and as alluring to me as Rome was. And not for the typical mm -hmm. reasons, from the Trevi Fountain to the Colosseum and the old forms. There was just the, the watching, walking on the soil. And, and I remember seeing a, a Vivaldi concerto one night, just mm -hmm. a random night, no one around, down by the Vatican. And I, it just blew me away. I mean, it pulled emotion out of me. It's song and music is never done. It just felt like that was some ancestral past life that the mm -hmm. ghost floated through me when I got there. And it's, it's mm -hmm. wild how that happened. I feel the same way, that there's something, there are many past lives in it. It's the only way to explain certain aptitudes. I've never had uh, a drum lesson or so on, but I uh, never have a problem picking up a drum and playing, you know, with others more or less, you know, it's fruitful whenever I pick up a drum and play with other drummers and other musicians. And there's 
no basis to that other than something from this prior incarnation. You know, Mark Twain once said he, did, he didn't regret what he did in his life. He regretted what he didn't do. And when I think about the way you've lived your life and just these vignettes and reading your bio, there's been so many things that you have tried and you've done. At this point in your life, is there anything else that you're like, I, I want to do that? That's something I want to do. I want to be a billionaire, Joe. Help me out. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Me and you both. <laughs> I just think what I could do with my... Uh, I think this could be the most fruitful decade of my life. It feels that way as we're coming out of what we've been in. Also, I'm working with some really good people at an entity called Jambar. comes from distance running. A good friend of mine from uh, the 1980s in the San Francisco Bay Area, Brian Maxwell, also Canadian. And uh, his wife, uh, Jennifer, founded Power Bar, which they made a big success. I kind of worked with them on it in the first five years or so. And they sold it in 2000. And now Jennifer has come back with a new, quote, organic artisan energy bar called Jam Bar. There are four different flavors. They all have a musical uh, relation because Jennifer has been a drummer, a really accomplished drum set player for about 20 years. The 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 flavors are chocolate cha-cha and malt nut melody and musical mango and jazzleberry, and they're all great. So that has just begun to launch over the past two months, and it looks like it's going to open up a lot of pathways that she especially wants. She's donating 50% of her net to music education and to active living. And we've already made a connection with, uh, well, the orphanage in Haiti. She just sent 1,200 uh, jam bars to FEPE and FA and College Canopy Fair and the UPUP school. And we just worked out with somebody you might know, a really great person, Jessica Barron, a guitarist in the classroom, an initial a delivery of 500 jam bars to the San Francisco United uh, Unified School District. So all that has come up just in the past two months. So I kind of have a feeling that maybe this decade is going to be completely different than a lot of great resetters would wish it. You know, it's going to be more of a, a burgeoning of creativity like the 1920s. Absolutely. Well, you know, and that was a lot of, you know, the Roaring Twenties came out of a world war, and there were a lot of yep. things that were akin to that. And, and, you know, I think about that now, you know, you know, I'm 49, and I've seen some flashpoints from, you know, the Challenger explosion to Reagan getting shot to, you know, 9-11, there was these different things. But I don't think any of us have ever lived through anything like this. So when I hear about artists that are waiting for that creative moment or that inspiration if they aren't getting it right now right i don't know if there's any point in human history that they they should take the time machine to because this is it this is a nexus and there has to be a birth a big bang of of creativity that's going to just explode all over the place and it is now so i'm so glad we're having this conversation because i'm going to record that myself and begin i'm going to use it somehow that's a great sample uh, Joe, what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you know, and what I'm noticing too is a guy doing this on the jazz side of things. I'm hearing some recordings from people that are literally blowing me away. Like there was a guy. He Likewise. Keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- there's this cat named Nate Smith that just put out an album that is something that I can hardly 
defined because it's so rich with sound and sonic textures mm -hmm. and it's, it's beautiful you know and there's a lot of these cats that are doing this and i guess that's my lead in right now to this in in honor of the fact that we're a jazz show what is it that you like the most about jazz music soul and surprise and taking you somewhere you haven't been consistently uh, i can listen to out to lunch anytime and go to a different place than i've gone with it before and I could yeah. say that about endless albums, but especially in the jazz idiom. I mean, you can go to a different place every time with Beethoven, Mozart, Charles uh, Ives, uh, etc. But jazz somehow, for me, going up where I did, how I did, reaches a place in America's that I'm always trying to reach. You know, I'm always trying to make the United States Americas, all of this hemisphere, all the riches that are here, all the riches that we uh, consistently are, ignore is not fair because they're consistently submerged. They're not allowed into our culture, but they're the richest part of our culture. So that's where I, I get what that's what I get with jazz. It's a very deep inspiration, and it's never knowable before the time of its coming. So if you could get into a time machine, you can go back in time. We get off the phone. DeLorean pulls up in front of your house. You get in. Where are you going? What digit you punch in, and who do you want to see live? Oh, I thought you were going to go back to 1860s Russia. I was going we to go can. to Dostoevsky. <laughs> yeah, no, we can go back as far as you want. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Uh, I think I'd love to see Oliver and Armstrong and Little Harms. Hard now. I think that's one band I would love to see. Of course, anyone would like to be there with Charlie Parker, Jesse Gillespie, uh, Kenny Clark, Max Roach, etc. That particular span of time, I would love to be in. I'd love to be in the Savoy Ballroom with uh, Chick Webb and uh, Ella Fitzgerald. I would love to tour with Clifford Brown and Max Roach. I'd love to be with uh, Eric Dolphy and Booker Little in the five spot or with Coltrane and Monk and David Amram, and kind of just going on and on. I was serious. I was lucky enough at age 16 to be in Western Washington State College when the Jefferson Airplane played in May of 1967, and I was really taken away by that particular show. Uh, I was taken away particularly by a show in... San Francisco at Radio Valencia by Glenn Spearman, uh, Paul Plimley, and uh, Lyle Ellis and Donald Robinson. Thinking back to other transcendent moments, a night of reggae in Berlin, Germany. But that was a great question in terms of asking, you know, kind of beyond lifetime or life experience where you would like to. I would love, I would love to have seen Bob Marley. And I, missed yeah. it. I was living in New York and I could have gone to the Apollo in, in 1979. I miss missing that. I miss I missed uh, Hendrix and Janice and uh, the Doors when they were at their peak. Uh, wow! You know, out of curiosity, you mentioned David Amram. Have you ever met him and spoken with him? He's a very good friend. <laughs> what a, a wonderful human. Friend. You you remind me of the spirit of you and uh, you being a force reminds me of him. I don't know that. It, David Amram was one of the first people that I interviewed that I got away 
and felt this, this, I, I can't even put my hands on it. There's been a handful of people that have totally transcended this reality in a way I never knew yeah. was possible. And David Amram is definitely one of the treasures of this planet. Boy, <laughs> I'm so glad we're recording this. He turned 91 yesterday. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, he has been a big supporter of sticking up for children. He recorded uh, seven lessons for the children there in French and played different uh, uh, instruments of the Western Hemisphere. That was in September of 2020. So he asked about, you know, what keeps you going through all this. It's things like that, you know, having, you know, a Zoom meeting with David Amram, and he, he did that, and we put it out into Haiti. And, well, that, that's wonderful. That's, yeah. Yeah. You know, let's say you have a dream tonight and you run into your younger self when you were young and rip roaring, ready to get out into the world, and you could give your younger self one piece of advice based on all the wisdom. And this isn't a regret question. This is about taking the wisdom that you've gotten. What would you tell your younger self? I don't know. I don't, I don't have regret. I mean, there are, things, there are acts that I regret, definitely. <laughs> Some really mm. stupid, cruel things that I've done. Uh, but overall, I wouldn't change a thing because I think going back to that predestination and so forth, I think it is all something made to make you you. I would maybe advise looking outside what is immediately there for you in the culture earlier. But I was lucky. I grew up, you know, as a teenager from uh, 63 to 69. So a lot was available to me even in Bellingham, Washington. We had a little store in downtown that was selling ESP discs, you know, in 1966. So we were going down by the Fugs and uh, by Albert Eiler when we were that age. But I would say, as a general rule, just try to, to find more experience outside what is immediately available to you. Kind of increase the scope uh, as much as you can. And again, it's, it's hard to proscribe what your nature is at a certain age, but be more sympathetic to the other um, than you may have been when you were 15, 16, 17 years old. So everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans colleagues, but ultimately you wake up with yourself every day. You have a perception of you. Who do you think you are? I think I'm whatever I create. And I'm coming to understand uh, that is who I am in this being. Uh, Einstein said something like, uh, well, my whole life is in my mind anyway. Uh, and so I interact a lot, or, you know, as I can with the world and try to have an effect outside. But who I am is really what I'm given. That may be the biggest understanding I've reached over the last 10 years. Everything is a gift. You have to work for it. Uh, a poet I've gotten to know in the last 10 years, Muhammad uh, Alama Iqbal, he has a concept of it jihadi in which you make the change. Allah wants good change for you, but you have to make the change. So anyway, who I am is what I can create each day uh that's what i and what i am able to create each day is a gift 
and that gift kind of needs to be extracted through work. I like that. That's wonderful. Don, man, it's been refreshing and wonderful to get to know you and to talk with you. Thank you. Good luck with the albums and as uh, we move forward in the world. Okay. Well, I look very much look forward to this show. Well, pleasure to get to know you, too, and please come down to New Orleans. Uh, there's an excellent Haitian restaurant, uh, Creole Rendezvous, about one mile from us here, and there's, of course, always music. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players, producers, and writers in New Orleans, San Francisco, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Don for being a pure force of humanity. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time. Enjoy the jazz, my friends. And still behold. Neon Jazz.